0: The unknown is coming, you know, new pandemics will be coming, new challenges are ahead and education will prepare, you know, our next, our future, you know, to be able to handle the unknown. And and I think that as someone who grew up in foreign countries and, you know, from in foreign cultures, there's a beauty to throwing yourself in something different. And education can provide students with new worlds, even if they never leave the classroom. You know, especially for underprivileged students, you know, students of color that don't have the means to seek, you know, education outside of their own neighborhood. We have the opportunity to bring the world to them and to prepare them for what is unknown.
1: Hello and welcome to Learning Machine, a podcast about the uncertain future of education in the 21st century. I'm Nathan Levin, here with my co-host Sam Scolacci. The voice you just heard was Karen Wu, the executive vice president of the Mind Research Institute. The Mind Research Institute creates a game called ST Math for K-8 math instruction. Karen's going to tell you about the details of the ST Math game, but you can also try it for free on their website, mindresearch.org. I tried it myself, and to be honest, it's dangerously engaging.
2: On today's episode, we will be asking the question How can educational games prepare students for the unknown problems of the future? And we'll be hearing from Karen about how mistakes, games, and intrinsic motivation can be powerful drivers of student learning. Support and inspiration for Learning Machine comes from our listeners. If you've got a minute and want to let us know what you think of our work, visit our website at www.learningmachinepodcast.com. Thanks, and enjoy the show.
1: So, Sam, ST Math stands for Spatial Temporal Math, and the idea is really interesting. It's this program where you control a penguin named Gigi. Gigi is the mascot of the program. (laughs) And basically you're solving puzzles within space and time that are essentially modeling mathematical concepts.
2: That game sounds awesome. Did you honestly find it engaging? Did you feel like it was something that you could sit and play for a long time?
1: I played for about 20 minutes and I think I was trying the free version which it was presenting concepts at a kindergarten level. The program spans K through eight uh, in terms of the levels of difficulty. So I wasn't really feeling enough of the challenge, which is interesting because what Karen talked about in our conversation is this idea that instead of awarding points or stars or giving students you know, more costumes or, or other types of rewards that are used in a lot of ed- our educational games, It's actually just rewarding you with more challenging problems. And so maybe the fact that I wasn't finding it challenging made it not as engaging for me as it would have been for a student.
2: Yeah, that's interesting that a ramp up in difficulty would be something. I think that's something that I would find engaging as well. And one of the things that I worry about when I see gamification in the classroom is, I mean, and I've used it in my own classroom. And what I end up seeing is students get really into the game, but sometimes the learning becomes this sort of side part. And the students comply with the learning in order to play the game,
1: but the game itself isn't the learning. Technology can provide those opportunities. The question is really, maybe I think there there are some people who would say that it hasn't delivered thus far, but we are hopeful that, that that is, you know, something we can do in the future as we start to improve and research and really understand the best ways to design inclusive technology. Karen and her team have a remarkable amount of research that indicates that ST Math is effective, that it is helping students achieve more learning in shorter amounts of time. The secret to that sauce is making learning fun. So let's hear her description of that.
0: My mom always said, if you stop learning, you're dying. Um, She's very dramatic. And I, uh, you know, took that to heart. And I'm always reading something or watching something, you know, to help, you know, learn something new. Last night, I was just watching a documentary about the only Chinese empress that China ever had and how misunderstood she was. And it was fascinating. But I think that people, you know, that don't think that they're learning maybe feel that learning is cumbersome and have never really enjoyed learning, which then leads to the responsibility of teachers and those that are wanting to become teachers to make sure that learning is fun and you know embedded into our spirit as something that we want to yearn for and it ties to how we created STMap, our you know key uh, program that my research institute created is that it's game-based like there's tons of research showing that game-based learning is effective because it taps into uh, learning being fun and being something that students want to achieve regardless of the reward there there's no extrinsic reward other than you just accomplish something hard and now you're going to be rewarded with something harder
1: as a teacher i always had this mentality that every student can learn right i've met teachers in my career who have said that you know oh so-and-so just doesn't get and i was teaching computer science so-and-so doesn't get computer science they're just not you know born to do it, or, or, you know, they're just, they don't have the right um, ability levels to do computer science. And I just, I, I reject that notion. I do think that everyone can learn. And I actually believe that everyone is born enjoying learning. I think, you know, one thing I said to Karen during our conversation was that I agreed with her that everyone can learn, everyone has, does actually enjoy learning. It's just a question of what they're learning and what the environment that they're in has convinced them is important to learn. And so I think what she's trying to do or her team's trying to do with ST Math is create an environment in which students feel that they can and want to learn the math standards.
2: Yeah, that's so powerful because I think that that is just something that's so true about life. So many things are acquired tastes, in a sense. You have to sort of learn how to enjoy them. You know, it might not be totally transparent at first. What's fun about math? You know, I... I. Have talked with so many students over the years who, you know, have this mentality of, I'm just not a math person. I don't like math. I don't do math. It's, it's okay. You know, I'm more of a language person. And even I had that mentality to a degree um, coming up in school, but I eventually found math to be really enjoyable and fun. And I see the engaging, enlightening side of math that makes it, you know, something that, that's fun to learn, not only useful, but that has, that is a really engaging process. And I struggle to understand as a teacher, right? I have struggled to understand as a teacher how to bring students into that, how to get them to see that engaging side. So the idea that this application can do that is really amazing.
1: I've always enjoyed math. I think that that is generally not the opinion of many students. The majority of people, I think, especially in the United States, don't feel like math is or don't enjoy math, or wouldn't call themselves, you know, math people. Uh, And maybe it's related to the fact that when I was a kid, my brother and I would play this game called math munchers, which was like you were a frog, and you had to jump around to lily pads and eat flies that represented each math problem. And once you ate enough flies, then you would get to go to like the final showdown where you had to answer questions rapid fire to to beat the final boss. To be honest, Sam, I don't think we ever beat the final boss. I remember how fun it was. It's because the questions got harder over time and, and the final boss was really challenging. But I was just there because I was enjoying the challenge of it.
0: What I see in the difference between ST Math and you know, traditional addicting video games is that you are learning and the learning is becoming harder. So there, in video games, there is ultimately... Uh, you know, you can only feed that addiction so long and the video game will end. It may take a while for the more robust video games, you know, you will, it will end, but you reach uh, a destination basically in which you're like, okay, there's no more, you know, places to explore. And I've already acquired all the coins and defeated all the monsters or whatever it is. And now the game is not interesting anymore. Very few people go back and replay a video game that they have actually completed because they, you know, mastered all of the levels and they want to move on to the next challenge. So that's where, you know, there are games that don't ever end and it's designed that way because they're only, you know, pushing on those addiction, you know, like you call it the neurotransmitters that, you know, push on that addiction. And that's not good because then you have, you know, screen time, that is very uh, ineffective. SC Math is built, the, the, we realize that it's screen time, but it's built on productive s- struggle. So when a student is doing something repetitive, they're not learning and it's not productive, and they're not struggling. Um, so nothing in the games is repetitive. So back to the mastery, levels you know we by designing the game in a way that the student can only move forward if they have mastered a skill or an understanding of a concept then you provide them with the next level and once you cover the standard moved on to the next level which sometimes it's a grade up um, then you know the student feels like they're learning
2: my time in the classroom was spent thinking All of the time, about how I could get students to engage in that productive struggle. And even in some ways, trying to convince them that it was a good thing for them to be in that space of productive struggle. One of the most interesting things that I thought about while Karen was speaking was we all enjoy challenges. The productive struggle is something that brings us joy. You know, as you put it, it's fulfilling. You know, maybe it's not fun, but it does bring a lot of fulfillment and can give meaning and purpose and really make people feel good to be on that track. But the sort of addictive, quick satisfaction games that I see a lot of my students engaged in are really popular. And so I struggle to see, I mean, I know that people get joy, but I still see that there's this question of how do you bring students in so that they can see, oh, I can do this and enjoy the productive struggle. And I think that that's one of the key aspects of teaching is trying to figure out how to lead students to that place.
1: Yeah, that's such an important question, right? That always comes up when we talk about educational technology is what is the role of the teacher? What is the relationship between the technology and the teacher? And something you're hitting on there, I think, is that some maybe one of the things that a teacher can do is to provide that 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 human element that convinces students to engage in the productive struggle as opposed to, you know, sort of the natural inclination to choose the easier game or the game that gives you more stars or, you know, the the game on their phone that's more rewarding. Yeah.
2: And that's the important point here, right, is that some of the stuff that we're doing with technology ultimately does become addictive, that it's uh, it's not healthy. It's almost it's the junk food of technology. It's a misuse of that tool. But well-designed tools are things that teachers can use to bring students in so they can enjoy the productive struggle.
0: Managing the line between addiction and thirst for solving a problem, I think we do a really good job staying with the wanting to solve a problem because we do see a drop in engagement level once they're not as engaged with the problem solving and you know and the, the game itself. And we're working on that. You know, changing that by creating new characters that they can be engaged with, but not then straddling to the distractors, which is, you know, creation of avatars. You know, when students like spend an hour creating their own avatar, it's like, what did you learn? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> you were just having fun creating a cute avatar. Um, that's not where we're going to go. But there is something about the imagery and even from an equity standpoint, the representation of the imagery that helps students stay engaged in a game.
1: Karen has a, a career in uh, video game design. She actually worked at, well, not design, but she worked at Nint- Nintendo for a long time. And so, you know, definitely understands what makes a good video game or what makes a good game and what makes a game successful. And she could be pushing on those buttons of addiction and reward But it seems that the Mind Research Institute is really striving and working hard to ensure that they don't become that type of application, that they're not this application that gives you you a gold star or a coin or a new t-shirt for your avatar every time you complete one of the puzzles. Instead, what they give you is a more challenging puzzle because they actually want students to get things wrong. I see this in
2: myself. I see this in myself in the way that I not only learn but I think I'm thinking so much about games and my relationship with games over my life and sort of just the you know the games that I picked up and put down once the challenge felt like it had gone away once it felt like you know I'd sort of uh, gotten all that I could out of it. I got addicted to the game for a moment and then let it go and as I've grown up over time and, and come to play more complex games. Nathan you and I play a ton of board games in all different environments, uh, outdoors, indoors. And those games, I feel like we like to learn new games all the time. It's not like we have one game that we just go back to over and over. We play a game and engage in the challenge of it and then put it down and move on to the next one because we want a new challenge and we want to learn something else. And I feel like that's such an intrinsic part of human nature. That's the thing to connect students with is that pathway of challenges. Right. So that when they when they get bored of the current learning challenge, you've got that next learning challenge there for them so that they don't get distracted by stuff that's just empty and fun, like building an avatar.
0: That is exactly the problem with the gamification of um, math programs. Let's stick to math. You know, there's lots of gamification of, you know, also word like reading and geography. There's lots of programs out there that have gamified different subjects. The difference with ST Math, which stands for spatial temporal math, uh, which means that you're manipulating objects in space and time, is that the game is the math. So it didn't get gamified. You know, a math problem that existed on paper didn't become gamified with cute characters and coins and, you know, point systems. Simply the game itself, the puzzle itself, will be how you learn the the, concept, the conceptual part of the map. And it's introduced at, you know, very low barrier of entry in the beginning with very few distractions because one of our co-founders is dyslexic. And that was one of the main things that he studies is how many distractions there are in gamified you know, programs, um, what you mentioned, you know, points, games, sounds, uh, lots of images, you know, timers that only add to the anxiety level of the student. We removed all of that from the game and just focused on the problem. And in doing so, the student gets to actually engage with the problem itself, develop their spatial temporal ability and reach, you know, uh, result which could be either the correct answer or the wrong answer but either way they're going to be getting informative feedback as to why the answer was correct or why the answer was incorrect whereas a lot of gamified programs it just tells you that you either got it right or you got it wrong try again and then you try again and maybe after three tries you know it gives you a hint and then you have to move on to the next game and you didn't get the points so it's more about the points and than it is about whether you figured out what you did wrong. And figuring out what we did wrong is actually one of the most powerful ways for us to learn.
1: I love this idea of encouraging students to get things wrong and students sort of expecting to get something wrong. And R.S. Karen says understanding why you got something wrong is an incredibly powerful metacognitive process for learning. You know, that sort of self-reflective looking at having, you know, and, and engaging in this really deep thought of like, oh, I had this concept of how this problem was working or how this idea worked. I applied it and then it didn't work the way that I expected. And then reflecting on that. And it's so difficult, I think, sometimes in the classroom setting to get students to do this because we set up our classroom so often, or at least I set up my classroom to be based around external rewards, Right? Students get the good grade. If you get, raise your hand and get the answer right, maybe I give you some positive feedback or, you know, I can't help myself but say, oh, you know, that's right. And it's very rare that a student would like raise their hand and give a wrong answer because generally students, I think, have been sort of conditioned to want to be right, to be fearful if they're wrong and to avoid raising their hand unless they feel really confident that they know the answer, which is problematic for a whole host of reasons. Number one being that, you know, there isn't much learning going on if you're just saying an answer that you already knew, but also, you know, there's lots of research out there that shows that female students are less likely to raise their hand or or feel less confident in their wrong answers than male students. We need, I think that what Karen's really pointing to is, is a necessary paradigm shift in classrooms toward encouraging students to get things wrong and really focusing on why a wrong answer was incorrect a lot of teachers and i include myself in this pay lip service
2: to the idea that it's good to be wrong and it's okay to be wrong and and that's how we learn but do we really set up our classroom environments to be supportive of that don't we all to some degree or another in this grade-based education system set up our classrooms such that the reward is being right and being wrong becomes the problem And so you don't want to be wrong, as opposed to what real life is like, where you come up to a challenge, you as long as the conditions are good, and you feel like you can engage it fairly, you try something and it doesn't work. And you just are sort of interested by that. And you think, okay, let me attack this again from another way. And I think people naturally build that resilience to figure out problems when the environment doesn't tell them being right is what's going to get you the reward and being wrong is going to hold you back.
0: What we do is provide informative feedback to an action that the student made. And regardless of whether they were right or wrong, they get to see the outcome of their action. So then they can expect to learn something from their action. And it is not um, psychologically, obviously, when they can expect to learn something, it's a good thing for the child. They don't feel discouraged if they got it wrong because they expect to learn something then I'm sure there's a ton of psychology behind all of this in how that child interacts with the teacher or the parent who's watching them make the mistake or watching them, you know, answer the question correctly. And this is why we actually have professional development to help teachers let students work out the problem on their own, do that productive struggle that will lead to learning without interfering ahead of time and you know, preventing them from failure. Like we want the student to fail. We want them to see what they did and for them to be comfortable with failure so that they learn from it. But that is actually very uncomfortable for parents and teachers to do, uh, but it's something that they can learn to do. And when they get good at that, um, it becomes a very powerful learning you know, environment for the student.
1: Sam, one of my favorite education quotes of all time is from John Dewey, and it was on the front entrance of the high school I was working at for the last four years. And yet none of my students ever read it, of course, but I would always ask them about it at the end of the year to see if anyone actually read it. But what it said is that education is not preparation for life. Education is life itself. And it took me a long time to kind of digest that idea. But what I eventually came to was this, this notion that Education should be preparing students for more education. And I don't mean more formal education. I mean, preparing students to both be able to have the confidence to and be interested in continuing to learn, right? Because once they leave the classroom, if students are terrified of getting anything wrong, and they don't have the skills to evaluate when they get something wrong, then it's going to be really hard for them to continue to learn once they've left this formal environment where everything is essentially supporting them towards learning. Right. And and this is why
2: I think that we see that people come out of the education system into the quote unquote real world and say, wow, I'm not, I'm not prepared for this. I'm not ready for this because that's not what they were practicing. They weren't practicing what it really is like to get something wrong and try to come back from it and, and figure it out from there. They're coming from an environment where being right is what is prized and, uh, you just want to get the top grade and then you're done. And that was the whole goal anyways, was to get the points, get the reward. You know, it's not about, growing as a learner
1: right Uh, which maybe what we're really saying here is that the content of especially k through 12 education doesn't really matter right what you're learning isn't important it doesn't it's because you're going to forget most of it anyway but what you're not going to forget is whether or not you feel comfortable getting things wrong and whether you're i think you know the phrase that comes to mind is like being able to successfully fail Right. Right. Definitely. And Being <laughs> ready for which the is, real which world. Which is being ready for the real world. And it, which, you know, I think what Karen's saying is that her, the, the program they've developed is not a product that teaches students how to play a game and how to get better at playing games. But what it does teach them is math concepts, but also how to expect to learn how to get something wrong and then how to continue facing progressively more and more challenging things. Our guest today was Karen Wu from the Mind Research Institute. You can follow her on Twitter at Karen C. Wu. That's K-A-R-I-N-C-W-U.
2: This week, your homework is to play an educational game. We'll link a few on our website. See if you can spot the difference between a game that uses external rewards to addict you to learning versus a game that engages you in learning because it's challenging and intrinsically motivates
1: I'm Nathan Levin.
2: And I'm Sam Skowachi.
1: You can find us, as always, at www.learningmachinepodcast.com.
2: Thanks for listening.